Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we all have mental models. We've grown up with them. We've been taught them. We get them through culture. But we have some that we rely on so heavily that we're almost blind to it. We don't even realize this mental model, just this one way of looking at the world has become our default. And we try to cram everything into that. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with my friend, James Clear, jamesclear.com. This guy is a unique thinker. I really like him. He is on another level, truly. We're gonna be talking about decision-making and mental models, collecting mental models, where and how. The 80-20 rule, nothing new for a lot of you, but why we need to live in what's called the fat tail, not the long tail, ruthlessly eliminating mediocre results and simplifying and how to live in what's called the zone of good luck. Enjoy this episode with James Clear. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC Toolbox. That's where we discuss things like reading body language, charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, mentorship, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. You can check that out at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox and also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. That's where you find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, here's James Clear. James, you're an interesting guy, right? You're a super photographer, and then it, you kind of got into this human performance space, and you think differently than a lot of people. Let's start from kind of the beginning. Why did you get interested in this stuff? What do you consider the utility here? The decision-making and all the different thought threads that you run with are highly unusual for somebody who's just out and about taking pictures, for example. Yeah, well, uh, first, thank you. Happy to be here. And... Uh... I guess I started looking at it as a personal journey. I wanted to get into human performance just because I was interested in trying to improve myself, right? To lift more weights in the gym or take better photos when I was out with my camera or write better articles when I was writing each week. And so as I started getting interested in that, I decided to launch my own business. This is about six years ago. And I realized that I had no idea how to get people to sign up for things or buy things or sell anything. Like selling was not a strong point for me. And so I started reading about consumer psychology and why people would buy stuff. And that took me down this whole rabbit hole of related areas around behavioral psychology and habit formation and performance improvement and just kind of the science of human nature and why we do what we do. So it, was, it started as a personal pursuit and then bled into a business pursuit. And then eventually it just became the thing that I was really interested in and wanted to build the business around. Right. Yeah. And it's been obviously very useful. People are super interested in this stuff from productivity nerds all the way to people who are just trying to get it together in the first place. And of course, all of us who are trying to constantly eke out 1% more 
out of any given day or any given business or endeavor are, are super into this stuff. One thing that you and I talked about pre-show and that I was really keen on covering here is that you assert that decision-making, of course, is essential for success in life, which I agree with, and that most of us, even experts, are really terrible at decision-making. How can that be? Let's talk about this. Yeah, well, the answer to how can that be is that the world is a very complex and interconnected space, and we silo information in our heads. You know, when we go to school, for example, we take classes in biology or history or English, and those are individual siloed departments, but the world doesn't actually work that way, right? Like all knowledge is interconnected. And so it's very hard for our brains to fully comprehend just how interrelated the world is and how those forces play on each other. And so that makes predictions very difficult to be accurate over the long run. And there's some really great research by this guy named Philip Tetlock. He interviewed all kinds of experts in given fields and asked them to make predictions about what would happen. And these are people who literally, you know, like nuclear physicists and the best of the best for their given field. And they were only right about 33% of the time. So, you know, two thirds of the time, even the very best, smartest people were wrong. So you can imagine how wrong you and I would be yeah. on a daily basis, right? Like, we, yeah. it's just very unlikely that we'd be able to make accurate it's troubling that nuclear physicists were wrong two thirds of the time. <laughs> That's not really given me too much faith and confidence here. I mean, those guys should be right a lot more than that, I would think. Yeah, well, obviously, it depends on the problem, right? It's much easier to solve a math problem than, say, a political problem or to make a prediction about how humans will behave in a, a given environment. Yeah. The point here is that our decision making is very fallible and much more fallible maybe than even what we realize. And so the question becomes, well, what can we do about that? Are there any tools that we can use to make better decisions? And one of the tools that I have found most useful and many people have found useful is a strategy that's called mental models. And it's just this idea that each individual mental model is a way of seeing the world, a way of looking at the issues that we face, the problems that we deal with in our daily lives. One example is what's called the bell curve. The bell curve is just a mental model, right? We're all familiar with it. It's this idea that you have this kind of even distribution where there are a few people who are outliers at the bottom of something. So a few people get Fs or Ds in the class. Most people are getting Cs and Bs. So you got this lumpy middle. And then you have a few people who are outliers on the upper half. They're getting As or A plus or whatever. And this applies to all sorts of things. And it actually does apply in many areas of life. Like, for example, height. You know, height is very bell curve distribution across the population. There are a few people who are really tall, a few people who are really short, and most people are about, you know, in that middle range. But that's actually just one mental model, one way of viewing things. Another way of viewing is through what's called the power curve, this idea that there's like exponential distribution. And so in this case, very few people account for the vast majority of the results. And the bulk of the people account for very little. And one of my favorite ways of doing this when I'm giving a speech or talking to some group is with something I call the shoe exercise. And so you basically, this is an idea I got from Perry Marshall. You have everybody stand up in the room and you say, all right, if you own more than two pairs of shoes, stay standing. If you own less, sit down. If you own more than four pairs of shoes, stay standing. If you own less, sit down. Eight, 16, 32, so on. And so gradually, people start to sit down, right? The bulk of the room is sitting by the time you get to 32. Then there are a few people still standing when you ask, do you have 64 pairs of shoes? A couple more with you have 128. And I've had uh, one woman who is still standing when I got to 512. She owns a shoe store. That's yes, all right. right. Yeah. And the point here is that if you get to adding up all of the shoes in a given room, you will find that the top three or five people own like 90% of the pairs of shoes, right? Like this one woman who owns 512 pairs of shoes 
is accounting for more than the other 90% of the room who everybody has six or seven pairs. And so the point here is that we have a very uneven distribution. It's not a bell curve at all. We got one or two or three or five people who account for 90% of the results. And this is true in many different areas, right? You can have one person on the sales team that brings in 80% of the revenue. You can have one hallway in your house that gets 80% of the foot traffic. You can have one you know, section of your closet that you wear 80% of the time. This is commonly known as the 80-20 rule or the Pareto principle of this idea that a few things account for the majority of the results. Where does that come from? I mean, how do we know it's true? It's clever to say, oh, 80-20, and it's like, okay, we just accept that as fact. Yes, good question. So it comes from this guy named Vilfredo Pareto, who is this economist. And uh, Pareto was this really mathematical guy. Around this time, you know, 17, 1800s, most economists were more like philosophers than mathematicians. They kind of like had these theories about how markets worked. And Pareto was this super math-oriented guy who wouldn't put numbers behind everything. And so one day he's out in his garden looking at these pea pods, and he realizes that few of the pea pods in his garden are producing the majority of the peas that he's harvesting. And so he has this idea like, oh, I wonder if this uneven distribution, if this applies to other areas of life. And so he starts looking around and he first investigates the land distribution in Italy. He's Italian. So he finds that about 20% of the people in Italy own 80% of the land. Then he starts looking at other nations. He looks at uh, wealth inequality in Great Britain. And he finds, again, like about 30% of the people own 70% of the wealth in the country. And so the numbers were never the same. A lot of times people hear 80, 20, and they think, oh, it has to add up to 100. But that's not the point. The point is, a few people account for the majority of the rewards. It's just, you know, a small portion account for the bulk of the outcomes. We see this all the time in our world now. For example, if you take the NBA, the top six franchises, so there are 30 teams, the top six franchises have won 75% of the NBA championships. And the top two franchises, the Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers, have won 49% of the NBA championships. So just two teams account for almost half of the titles that have won. And you see very similar distribution in Major League Baseball, the NFL. The World Cup is even more so. You have three teams, Brazil, Germany, and Argentina, maybe, who have accounted for the vast majority of World Cups that have been won. And you also see it in the natural world. So researchers just looked at the Amazon rainforest. There are 16,000 different types of trees in the Amazon. But what they found is that there are 227 hyper-dominant species of trees that account for over half of the rainforest. And then the bottom 11,000 species account for only like 1%. So the trees that are a little bit better at competing, a little bit better at capturing sunlight, a little bit better at surviving, they get almost all the rewards. And the bulk of the trees who are, you know, just average or a little bit worse than the better ones, they get almost no land. They capture almost none of the soil and nutrients and sunlight. So my point being, the 80-20 rule is displayed all over life. And so is the bell curve. And so by having these two mental models, we can look at the world in two different ways. And that can be very useful for making decisions. Because if you try to fit everything into the bell curve or everything into the power curve under the 80-20 rule, it's not going to work out well for you. You'll make decisions that are incorrect. Sure. So we got to collect these different mental models, the bell curve, for example, the power curve, the Pareto principle, for example. How do we know which one to use and when, or am I getting ahead of myself here? Yeah. So it's a really good question. And I think the best answer is that you don't. That's what makes decision making hard. But, and this is what many great decision makers have done. So take, for example, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, the guys behind Berkshire Hathaway, you know, two of the most famous investors of the last century. Charlie Munger is really big on mental models. And what he says is that, you know, there are hundreds of these things out there, hundreds of different ways of looking at the world. 
but there may be 20 to 50 of them that carry the majority of the weight for your everyday decision-making. So you're going 80-20 on the mental models. That's very meta. Yeah, interesting, right? He has a checklist of those you know, 20 or so. And if he's making a big decision, he'll go through each one and try to look at the problem through that lens to see if it helps provide some insight. And I think what's important to realize is when we're trying to make better decisions, a lot of the time it's not about trying to figure out the exact right answer, but rather trying to avoid a stupid mistake. And mental models can help illuminate if there's something that you're overlooking that would have made this a grave mistake if you didn't have that lens or view available. Right. So we basically want to collect these different mental models or ways of looking at the world that are, am I going to use this word right, heuristics, where we have kind of like a set of criteria. All right, we're looking at this 80-20. All right, let's look at this as a bell curve, the average, that type of thing. And we can start to look at problems in different ways. And this is useful because it allows us to get a grip on what otherwise or handle on what appears to be random data or what appears to be conflicting data or what appears to have two answers to the same problem, et cetera. Yeah. So let me give you two really practical examples. Like what would this look like in everyday life? The first one is a mental model. It's called the Red Queen effect. It comes from Alice in Wonderland. There's this scene where she's running with this Red Queen and they're running faster and faster in front of this tree, but they never go anywhere. They just stay in front of the same tree. Well, you see this pattern play out in everyday life all the time, especially in business. People talk about staffing up, hiring new employees, growing the business. And what ends up happening is they run into the red queen effect where they go from five people on their staff to 10 people on their staff. And maybe they went from making a million dollars a year to making $5 million a year for the business. But with additional management expenses and salary expenses, they end up with the same amount of profit at the end of the day. And so by looking at the problem of should we hire somebody or not, through the lens of the Red Queen effect, you can try to figure out, is this a good idea? Like, is this definitely going to lead to additional profit? Or are we just going to be running faster and faster, trying to move more quickly, but end up with the same thing at the end of the day, end up not having actually gone anywhere and just have a more complex machine running because of it. And so we get different mental models from where? I mean, where do we find these other than, of course, on this show, we talk about mental models all the time, but it seems like we should probably have a variety of sources here. Yes. And this is kind of the key thing. So we all have mental models. We've grown up with them. We've been taught them. We get them through culture. But we have some that we rely on so heavily that we're almost blind to it. We don't even realize this mental model, just this one way of looking at the world has become our default. And we try to cram everything into that. This is something that's called the law of the instrument sometimes. Or people are very familiar with this proverb of like, give a man a a hammer and every problem looks like a nail, right? It's like you just try to bang everything into one perspective. And so the answer is to read very broadly, to try to read a variety of books that give you a different lens, a different way of looking at them. What's nice now is that this topic of mental models has started to develop a little bit of steam. And so people are writing about them and creating lists of them. You know, like I was just looking at a list earlier today of the founder of DuckDuckGo, Gabe, who put together a list of like 80 mental models that he finds repeatedly useful, that he goes back to time and again to try to look at different business decisions through. And so now the nice thing is just a simple Google search can bring up a variety of different ones. The other way to think about it, if you're interested in putting together your own set of tools for looking at the world better, is to go through it industry by industry or silo by silo. I mentioned earlier that we have like silos for our knowledge, English, biology, history, chemistry, and so on. Well, each one of those fields of study, they have core mental models that they rely on. You know, So if you have chemistry, for example, you got the law of thermodynamics or something like that, right? So each of these different industries has kind of their core, let's call it five to 10 principles. And if you can learn the five to 10 principles that carry the most weight in each of these different fields, 
then you have a really broad, useful set of mental models to look at the world through. Right, because if you only have the one mental model, you only have one way to solve the problem. There we have the law of the instrument, right? Mm -hmm, Exactly. As you've argued on your blog as well, if you are an expert in one particular area, you're smart, you're talented in this area, you've worked at it for 10 years, you might also end up with that same law of the instrument, right? If you're a computer programmer, you're thinking, wow, this light bulb in my garage, it turns off all the time randomly. Maybe I should code something that sends me a notification to my phone, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, the electrician or even just your kid says, why don't we just get a new light bulb? Yeah, exactly. You know, like one of my favorite examples comes from Robert Sapolsky, who's a a professor and researcher at Stanford. And he talks about like, why did the chicken cross the road? And if you ask a biologist, they say, well, the hormones in the chicken's brain, you know, like they interacted in a particular way that told the chicken to move across the road or it saw a, a potential mate over there. And that made it want to go over and mate with the other chicken. If you talk to someone who's into like kinesiology and anatomy, they say, well, the knee of the chicken bent and the muscle like pulled the knee forward and then the chicken propelled across the road. And if you talk to, you know, a psychologist, they give you a different reason. And the point is that we see the situations in our lives through the lens that we think about the most. And the goal here is to try to give you a different lens through which to look at the world. It's almost like each time you use a mental model, you put on a different set of colored glasses. You know, like first we'll look at them through the blue glasses, and then we'll look at them through the green ones and the red ones. And each time you shift that perspective, you give yourself a new viewpoint of the problem and hopefully unearth some thinking errors that you would otherwise not see. Right. So it's about diversity in this area, whereas we usually and do encourage people to specialize. You have to be careful that you're not also handcuffing yourself to the mental models that you get from a specific area of expertise or from specific experiences, because the more you master that single mental model, the more likely it becomes that this is going to be your default and your downfall. And it seems like smart people can really fall into I guess what would be confirmation bias that would then, you're running yourself into a blind alley all the time, right? You're running into a dead end a lot of the time because you can't use that default mental model all of the time, and yet, there we go. So smart people, and I think you said this in your work as well, smart people have mental models and use them consciously. Brilliant people have multiple mental models and select the best ones to use on any given problem. Yeah, I think expertise is wonderful. Mastery of the topic is incredibly useful. It's a rare and valuable skill. But the danger of becoming more of an expert or gaining more experience in an area is that progress becomes assumed. We think that because we've been working on something for five years or 10 years, we are suddenly better at it. And in many cases, we're not actually improving. We're just reinforcing the habits and thinking patterns that we've already developed. We're not broadening our skill set. I would argue that having a wider range of mental models actually equips you to become more of an expert, more of a groundbreaking person in your given field or more talented or more creative because innovative ideas often happen at the intersection of seemingly unrelated areas. And so by having multiple mental models, you can start to make those connections across those intersections that other people just won't be able to see because they have a smaller toolbox, right? They have a smaller set of thinking tools. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch 
or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. So how do we get a bigger toolbox, right? You suggest reading unique books, not necessarily just tons of books, but you have a certain type of books that you're looking for. I thought this was pretty interesting because most of us just try to devour everything that we can or we read all the stuff inside our industry, but that's not quite what you're thinking here. Yeah, so there are a couple different ways to find good books to read. So the first one, just a little Amazon hack. If you find a book that you find really useful, go to Amazon and click on the three-star not the one-star reviews that hate it, not the five-star reviews that love it, but the three-star reviews. And these are often people who say, I really liked XYZ concept in the book, but you should actually read this other book because it explains the counter-argument better or it explains this topic better. And so that's often a good place to look for better reading suggestions. The second one is 
almost everybody tends to read new stuff because that's the stuff that gets marketed. That's the stuff that gets talked about. So, you know, if it's a best-selling book from this year, last year, everybody's heard about it. If it's a best-selling book, even like a Pulitzer Prize winner from 1970 or 1980s, nobody knows about it. It's too old at this point. And so the interesting thing is to look at books that are older. And if they still are getting good reviews on Amazon, if they're still seen as a pillar book in that industry, then that actually means the ideas in that book are really, really good because they've had to stand the test of time for 25 or 30 or 50 years. There are a couple of different experts that have theories about this, but the basic idea is the longer an idea lasts, the better the idea is. So like Charles Darwin came up with the idea of evolution over a hundred years ago. And that idea is still super, super relevant and has all kinds of robust knowledge behind it today. There were a bunch of other ideas that were thought up over a hundred years ago, but many of them have been debunked. And so the idea is that anybody can have a good flash in the pan idea for a year or two, and then the real world comes and smacks it upside the head and shows that it's not actually that useful. And if an idea has lasted for a decade or two or five, then it's actually a really, really useful idea. So the idea here is read old books. Don't just read the new stuff that gets pushed around. Right. And this is used, of course, to develop mental models and create a web of ideas that shows seemingly unrelated ideas might connect with one another. And I find that this is very useful, especially for my work here at The Art of Charm, both on the show and in in our live programs, because when we're reading a new book, we're listening to somebody else talk, and we're writing down the ways that this information might connect to something else that we already know, it's essentially the creation of new content. It's like a new neural pathway in your brain almost. You're taking something that nobody had ever thought of and plugging it in to something else. And this is essentially the entire internet economy or, hey, let's electrify this thing and make it powered or let's add a gasoline engine to it or moving into the future, let's add artificial intelligence to it. And right now it might seem silly to have something that's a thermostat that has artificial intelligence and yet look at Nest, right? Look at these different things where you think, oh, this ain't broke, don't fix it. And now you've made it so much better by adding something to it that you would never have thought of. Whoever thought of that was into HVAC, into machine learning and also various other types of disciplines. And that's why we ended up with something that was new, novel, and useful. Yeah, so I think there's a really important concept here that we should talk about. And it comes from uh, the first person I heard it from is this philosopher named Ken Wilber. And the way that he describes it is transcend and include. And so our knowledge should transcend and include what came before. And the idea is that the mental models you have today, even if it is a relatively limited set of tools, there's truth in them. They're valuable. You just need to find additional ones and start to integrate them together so that you can transcend to the next level of thinking. And if you look at how any living system progresses, it follows this pattern of transcend and include. So the most basic example is you take atoms and then they build into molecules and molecules build into cellular organisms and those build into organs, which build into you know humans, which build into societies and nations and so on. And if you want to get technical about it, societies are made up of atoms, but they all along the way, they transcended and included to the next thing, right? And there was a new stable intermediate form that was created because all the knowledge was integrated in a way that fit together. And you mentioned earlier, this idea of, you know, once you read something, journal about how it connects to other ideas or write down how that knowledge integrates with what you already know. And that can be a really useful thing to do after you read each book. Just take a look at three or five books on your shelf and think about how does what I just read link to the other things that I've read previously. 
And you start to develop a tighter web of mental models and understand how those ideas integrate so that you can then transcend to that next level. For me, it took me a while to learn this stuff because I went to a public school and it was a fine school and everything, but I had ideas that were for math, ideas that were for social studies or whatever we call it, ideas that were for writing class and ideas that were for history. There was one class that I had called Flex, which has nothing to do with the subject matter, of course, but it was essentially like English and history and a bunch of other things mashed together. And all the other teachers hated it because all the kids that were in it had this three hour block and all the classes, all four years were together. And when we got to college and we were forced to plug ideas from one subject matter area into another, we were all good at that because we were all being taught that at the same time. So we would learn about the Parthenon and we'd watch a movie about how it was constructed and we'd learn about the physics of how it stays together and then we'd learn the mathematical equations involved and the history surrounding it and the religion and the studying that went on around and in that. And it was actually really incredible, but it was so hard to get used to my freshman year because I had never been taught at any point in my entire life before essentially young adulthood to even think that ideas overlapped. It was like when you're a kid and you're eating at McDonald's and you don't want the fries to touch the burger and you don't want your salad, which obviously <laughs> you didn't get at McDonald's, to touch any of your other stuff, so you're separating them on the plate. That's what we were taught growing up to do with ideas and it doesn't really work, right? Ideas aren't just for economics, they're not just for engineering. We're tricked into compartmentalizing because of how we're taught subjects in school. Yeah, it's. I think one of the most fascinating things for me is that it provides, it puts a spotlight on human nature and why we act the way we do. Because a lot of times, if you only look at things through a particular perspective or a certain point of view, you get very confused. You're like, why are people acting irrationally? Like, for example, I recently heard that people who live in areas that have the most pollution are actually the least likely to vote for positive climate change measures, to vote for, you know, decreasing pollution and so on. And when you hear that, you think, well, that doesn't make sense. Why do people vote against their own best interests? But then you find out that these are also the people who are most likely to be working at factories that would be producing pollution. Right. So right. they don't want to get rid of their own job, Right. And so anyway, the world is very complex and interrelated. And so you can look at that problem of pollution through either a climate change lens and say, well, this doesn't make any sense. Or you can look at it through a business lens and say, oh, this makes a lot of sense. People don't want to lose their job. And so having multiple mental models and viewpoints helps you understand this conflicting decision making or confusing, messy nature of, of humans and why we do what we do. Right, exactly. I have a quote, I think, from your work as well, from James Webb Young, that says, the capacity to generate new ideas hinges upon your ability to see the relationships between concepts. So in other words, you have to be able to make connections between the options you have and the outcomes that you want, and the options you have in terms of mental models and the outcomes that you're looking for. Yes, exactly. And the more options you have, the more connections you can make. So that's the point of reading broadly and trying to figure out, like, looking at the Amazon reviews or searching for old books. Another method that I really like using is if I have a book that I really respected and thought was, was really great, go back to the end notes and look at which books those cite. And then you can dive into some good reading suggestions that way. So there are a variety of ways to find really good options. And then I also maintain a really broad reading list on my site. So you're welcome to look at that too. Tell me about the inversion technique. Is this a mental model in itself or is this something unrelated? Yeah, no, it is. And I think it's actually one of the most practical ones. So, you know, we talked about siloing information around different topics like English or history or chemistry, but we often silo information just on our like viewpoint of the world. And one of the ways we do that the most is through goal setting. So we think about what we want to achieve, where we want to go, the type of person we want to become, what kind of business we want to run or the career we want to have. 
And it's always focused on looking forward, right? What we want to achieve. The idea with the inversion technique is to flip that. And another phrase that you can use that I like to call this is a failure pre-mortem. So you're trying to figure out ahead of time, how are you going to fail? You know, envision failing at this task of not getting your dream job, of not building a successful business, of not finding the relationship partner that you want, and write out in detail what is going to make that happen. Why is this not going to work out for you? And this failure pre-mortem should illuminate a lot of things that you can avoid or problems that you can rectify ahead of time rather than running into those issues after the fact. So rather than thinking about what we want all the time, let's think about how we will fail and then we can develop if-then strategies for doing that. And this is also really useful just for daily habits. You know, like what would keep you from going to the gym each week? And once you write those things down, then you can develop an if-then strategy for, well, if my kids, you know, end up having to stay late at school on Monday and I can't work out, then I will do 20 push-ups at home that night, or I'll make sure that I get into the gym on Tuesday morning or whatever it is that works for your schedule. But the point is you can only plan for a problem after you've identified it. And the failure pre-mortem or the inversion techniques helps you do that. Right, because otherwise, and this is true in business, your personal life and every scenario I can possibly think of, otherwise what happens is you go, oh, well, my kids have to stay late at school. And then you don't really have any plan for what to do. You have to literally sit down at that point and go, how do I react in real time slash too late to this new problem that I had not thought about? And the answer is usually, ah, screw it, right? And you microwave some lasagna and you forget about the gym. Yeah, the reason that we struggle to overcome a lot of these daily failures is not because we're incapable of overcoming them, but because we don't have a strategy for dealing with them ahead of time. And so we end up becoming victims of inertia, right? Like, I mean, that's just how life works. We Things happen and we respond. And so we end up living reactively rather than proactively. And so the inversion technique is just one mental model to try to help get you in a proactive mode rather than a reactive. Right, so basically we look at problems backwards slash inside out, figure out what's going, where the fail points are gonna happen, what we're going to do as a contingency plan. We had General Stanley McChrystal on the show before as well, and he talked about doing this type of thing with special forces because, of course, if you've got Navy SEALs and Green Berets and Army Rangers doing something, there's going to be multiple fail points. These guys and girls have to be able to actually fall back to a plan B immediately without thinking together with minimal communication in real time with bullets flying slash explosions, right? So this stuff becomes really, really serious. And whenever the special forces use anything, I tend to uh, also figure out where I might be able to apply that same thing. It also helps us figure out where we can react based on our capabilities. You give the example of Jerry Rice, who basically eliminated the errors and mistakes that are preventing him being faster. He couldn't just get faster. He couldn't just run faster. He focused on running more precise routes in football. And as a result, when his opponents made mistakes, he was able to take advantage because he had honed that to a razor's edge instead of just going, gee, I hope I run really fast today. Otherwise, I'm going to get hit. Yeah, this idea of like playing to our natural strengths, I think it's incredibly important. And this transitions a little bit from the mental models idea to once we're looking at a world in a particular way and a mental model reveals that, oh, we should attack a situation uh, in a given way, how do we do that in the way that's best for our, our actual genetic abilities? How do we do that in the way that's best for our natural inclinations? Basically, how do we, how do we try to optimize the luck that we could have? You know, So if you take Jerry Rice, for example, he was fast enough to play in the NFL, but he wasn't going to beat people with his speed. 
whereas he was incredibly precise running routes. And so he could actually leverage that strength to become a really great receiver and eventually to become the best of all time. And so rather than trying to focus on that moderate or mediocre point in his game, he focused on the one that was the strength and was able to separate himself that way. And if we can do the same in our careers and our love lives and our daily habits and you know health, then the results can be really great. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. We do shows on luck. In fact, we just did one recently with Robert H. Frank, who talks about success and luck. It's kind of hard to decide to be more lucky. It usually ends up having to do with giving yourself more chances to hit, right? And, and making yourself available, grit, determination, and resilience, keeping yourself in the game long enough to get lucky. How do we live in the zone of good luck? Yeah, so I think there are two ways. The first is repetition, which is what you mentioned. One of my favorite stories, this is a true story, comes from this guy who's a photographer. He runs a class at the University of Florida. And at the beginning of the semester, he had a group come in and he said, all right, I'm going to divide the class into two sections. The section on the left is going to be graded purely on the quantity of photographs that you take throughout the semester. So, you know, if you take 50, it's an A, take 40, it's a B, whatever. The group on the right is going to be graded on the quality of photographs that you create this out throughout the semester. You only have to take one picture, but it has to be the most perfect picture that you can take. So the end of the semester rolled around and it turned out that all of the best photos were taken by the quantity group, not the quality group, because they were out honing their skills, learning about perspective and composition and improving their abilities, while the quality group was trying to theorize about what the best picture would look like and what a perfect photo would be and weren't actually developing skills. And so 
that's the repetition side of it. Yes, one way to increase luck is to simply take more chances or to simply hone your skills. And eventually, if you take 50 photos and try to do the best you can each time, one of them might turn out to be really good. But there is a second tool that we have. And I think that this one is maybe, I don't want to say surprising, but more overlooked of the two. That tool is measurement. You know, so often we can live in a zone of good luck if we simply have feedback about what is actually working and do more of that and less of what isn't working. But many times we don't measure the things that we want to get good at. We just think, oh, well, I guess I just got to try harder. I need to put more work in. Right. Keep your head down. Good things will come to those who wait and other things that we were taught as kids that are not necessarily true. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, and hard work is important. Relying on that specifically and thinking that you don't need any feedback often ends up not leading you down the path to success. So one interesting side effect of this is uh, something that I call the Goldilocks rule. And the Goldilocks rule, there's this great research on motivation. Why do we stay motivated with something? And this ties directly into the repetition side of the zone of good luck, right? Like in order to repeat something over and over again, in order to increase your surface area for good luck, you need to maintain motivation. You need to stay interested and invested in the task, whatever it is that you're doing. So the motivation research shows that the tasks that are most motivating to the human mind are those that are just on the perimeter of our abilities. So classic example, say you're playing a tennis match. And, you know, if you play against Roger Federer or Serena Williams, well, it might be fun for a minute or two, kind of cool to play them. But if you're playing a serious match, it's going to get boring pretty quick because you're going to lose every point. Conversely, if you play against a four-year-old, it might be cute for a minute or two. But if you're actually trying to win, it's going to get really boring pretty quick because you're going to win every point. Meanwhile, if you play against somebody who is just kind of at your level of ability, you win about half the points, they win about half the points, there's a chance that you'll win the match, but only if you really try, that is actually incredibly motivating to the human mind to live right on that perimeter of our abilities, on that cusp. The only way to know whether you're on the perimeter of your abilities or not is to get feedback, to get some kind of measurement that tells you whether you're there or not. And so the more that we can measure our success and figure out, one, where am I right now? And two, what would a little improvement look like the more motivated we can stay and the more repetitions we can put in? And it's much easier to be lucky when you're putting in those reps than when you're not. Right, sure. So we increase the surface area for luck through repetition, of course, and also through measurement and short-term feedback. Seth Godin says the best way to change long-term behavior is with short-term feedback. So we want to increase our abilities to get that feedback, whether through coaching or programs that give us direct output. And tying this back into what we do a lot here at The Art of Charm is a lot of guys and girls will come in wanting to learn to be better with networking and things like that. And we'll run them through a hundred plus new interactions while coaches are watching. We'll videotape it so that you can get years and years of experience in a very specific area and actually get feedback. If I meet you at an event, James, uh, and I make an awkward introduction, you're not going to go, hey, Jordan, uh, it's nice to meet you. By the way, that was a little awkward. Here's what happened. You got bad <laughs> breath and you leaned in too far, right? No one's going to give you that feedback. You have to create scenarios in which you're getting coaching or in which the situation itself is going to coach you and give you meaningful insight, leaving less up to your own interpretation. Because it's really easy, I'm sure you get emails like this in your inbox as well, and I know I do, where someone will say, look, there's something going on at work, everyone's against me for some reason, and you get that and you go, you're doing something, you just can't see it. There's something that you're doing or not doing that's driving people up the wall or causing you to run into problems in your relationships or in your career, and 
when we leave this up to our own interpretation, it becomes problematic. Like I might think I'm not good at tennis because I can't run fast enough to hit the ball on the other side of the court when really a tennis pro would say, look, you're hitting the ball in such a way that I'm always going to hit it to the other side of the court. You have no strategy. You're gonna run back and forth around this court until you get tired and then you're gonna lose. And even if I could run an ultra marathon at sprint level, I would still lose every single match of tennis because I'm doing something else wrong. I mean, what you're saying is exactly true, that so often the reason that we don't improve, you know, we feel bad about our performance, but it's not because we're not good enough to achieve success. It's because we don't have the right feedback to show us what to work on. We don't have the right measurement or coaching to highlight the areas that we actually you know, should be investing our time and energy in. Now, you're big on eliminating the inessential. You were one of the first people I've read that even talked about things like 80-20, talked about Pareto Principle. I've been following your stuff for a really long time. I've seen it years and years ago, and we met a really long time ago now that I think about it, or at least our first interaction via email was a super long time ago. This has been something that you've worked on a ton. And for a while, correct me if I'm wrong, you were traveling around the world, taking photos, and living in a, almost as simple a way as possible. Yeah, so I've never been like fully nomadic. I've always had a home base, but every year I publish my ultralight travel guide, show how I travel the world with just a single bag. I have taken a lot of effort to have a minimal design on my website and reduce, you know, all clutter, no advertisements, no sidebar, you know, reduce the amount of buttons, all kinds of stuff like that, improve the reading experience. But the point in the way that it applies to larger life is that minimalism, there's a great quote, it says something along the lines of, Minimalism is not about doing the least amount of things, but the optimal amount of things. And that, I think, is the approach that I try to take. How can we optimize what we're doing so that we get rid of the stuff that's not providing value and focus only on the things that are actually driving results? And that's something you can apply to whether it be your weightlifting habits or your travel strategy or the way that you design your website, you know, pretty much any other area in life. Right. This kind of dovetails a little bit in an interesting way that I hadn't thought of with the fat tail idea that we were talking about earlier in that you really do have to simplify down to find out what that fat tail even is. Can we talk again about fat tails and the idea that any individual outcome, for example, is unlikely but needs to be done systematically in order to get success? Because I feel like this is something we touched on and yet here we are talking about simplifying and we come full circle into the idea that success can only really be achieved when you simplify. Let me give you a story and a practical example of how to apply this, because I think the idea that a few things account for the majority of the results, you know, I think that we all have kind of this vague notion of it. And what I mean when I say vague is that it's not on the surface, but once it's explained or explicitly stated in a sentence or two, it's like, oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense that a few of our customers account for the majority of our revenue or a few of the problems in our business account for the majority of the time and hassle and errors that we deal with, or a few of our clothes get worn the, the majority of the time. So the 80-20 rule makes logical sense. But how do we actually apply that when we have many things that we want to do on a daily basis? One of my favorite strategies is what I call the Ivy Lee method. And there was this consultant, his name is Ivy Lee. He was hired, I think it was back in 1918, by Bethlehem Steel, which was one of the largest steel companies at the time. And uh, they brought him in and he said, look, I have a strategy. If you just let me work with your top executives, just give me 15 minutes with each of them. You don't have to pay me. I'll just work with them to improve their productivity. And then in a month or two or whatever, you can bring me back in. If you think it was worth it, pay me whatever you think it's worth. And so the CEO is like, well, this is a deal I can't really lose. So go ahead, go talk to everybody. So he spends 15 minutes with each executive and he teaches them a very simple strategy. It's like brain dead simple, but it works if you actually execute it. He said, okay, first thing I want you to do is write down 
a list of the six things that you need to get done tomorrow. Then I want you to prioritize that list in its order of true importance. So the most important thing is at the top, second most important after that, and so on. And then when you come in tomorrow, I want you to work on the first task until it is completed. You don't get to work on any other task until that task is done. Then move to the second one, and then the third, and so on. Anything that's left over and is unfinished, you move it back to the top of the list for tomorrow, or you redo a list of six things and rank and prioritize them again. So he leaves. They repeat that strategy for the next three months. The CEO brings him in. He was so happy with the results that he wrote him a check for $25,000, which back in 1918 is now worth like over $400,000 today. And the point here is, you know, the idea of do the most important thing first each day, and that will, you know, simplify your life by just focusing on one task at a time, getting that most important task done. It's very easy to say, it's incredibly hard to do. How many days do you actually do the most important thing to completion first each day, and then move on to the second most important thing? I've done it sometimes on my best days, but very rarely have I done it ever. And what we find is that that level of simplicity and that level of ranking and ordering things forces you to make hard decisions rather than living in this gray zone where you just sometimes work on things that are useful and sometimes work on the power curve, the fat tail side of things that provides 80% of the results. So we usually know that a few things provide most of the results and we often know what those strategies are, but we very rarely work on them with our core priority first each day. That's a good point, right? I remember I spent years saying, look, the show brings in all of these great leaders, these great thought leaders, these great authors, and it gets people to spotlight our brand. They see what we're doing at AOC. It attracts a lot of attention. And then I would do a bunch of, I don't know, random crap that I don't even remember now for an entire week. And then Friday or Saturday or whatever, a release day six years ago would roll around and I'd go, crap, I got to do a show. And I'd be calling friends of mine like, hey, what are you doing tonight? You want to go out to dinner and we'll record a podcast? Oh, sure, Jordan. What about? I don't know. Think of something on the way here. (laughs) Right. We'd show up and we'd be hungry and we'd buzz through a 30 minute, 45 minute show. Again, this is like six years ago, plus maybe even longer, I hope. And we'd record it and I would do some cursory editing and upload it. And I would then pay lip service to, well, the show's so important and all this. And it was only until I really decided, look, I need to focus on this over everything else other than maybe my health. And that's when everything started to explode because it's very easy to say something like, yeah, you know, family first, and then you're out hanging out with your buddies or you're out screwing around doing something else. And then after a while you go, I don't know what happened. My relationships fell apart, but I've always been such a family oriented guy because we choose that to maybe be a part of our identity or we choose that to maybe be something that we value even in our office and either we or possibly our boss says, yeah, yeah, we're all about the customer, but not this time and probably not tomorrow either. But yeah, it looks good on the door. We have to focus on actually eliminating, simplifying, and focusing on those specific levers. You know, it's kind of like humans are a lot like a rose bush and that we think that we're like a tree. We think that we can grow wider and taller, extend our branches, continue to take more and more on. And the natural inclination of life is that more things creep in. The longer you're in business, the more business ideas you have, the more your network grows, the more people you could reach out to, the more projects that you have on your plate. The more time goes on, it's natural for new things to creep in. But we are not like a tree. We can't just continue to add these new things and grow wider and taller. We have a fixed amount of energy, a fixed amount of time. We're much more like a rose bush, which has this kind of constrained height and size. And in order for it to fully blossom, you have to prune away 
rose buds. You have to prune away buds that could blossom into something good so that you can make room for the ones to blossom into you know something great. So the same idea applies to our lives, right? We have to simplify. And that's really easy to do when you have like time-wasting activities. Everybody's like, oh yeah, of course you shouldn't procrastinate for an hour. You should do something effective. But it's much harder to do when you're choosing between good ideas and great ideas. And that's where I think the forced ranking of that Ivy Lee method can be helpful because it forces you to say, you can't rationalize spending time on number four on your list because you know what number one is. I think that one of the keys to making this simplicity strategy stick over the long run is being able to shift your focus from outcomes to process. Because living a simple life or focusing on a few things, like for example, you know, for you, Jordan, focusing on this show each day, it's a practice of some sort, right? Like everything in life is a practice. And you're saying, I'm choosing to make this the practice that I really like to show up each day and work on the show to make this the priority. It's like, you know, making a morning cup of coffee or going to the gym each day or whatever. It's something that is a core feature of your day. And it's a lot easier to stick to that simplicity and have that maintain that simple focus when it becomes a core practice of your day and not about the result. When it's about the result, you just chase whatever strategy you think can get you to the outcome. When it's about the practice, it becomes much easier to stick to that thing that is number one or two on your list because it's something that's a core feature of who you are and how you live. Right. This sounds kind of like Jerry Seinfeld's write something every day and cross it off on the calendar strategy. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to link together some of the ideas we talked about throughout this call, we have this idea of simplicity and practice and focus, this idea that a few things lead to the majority of the results. And one of the ways to increase that number of repetitions, increase your ability to do them consistently is to measure them. And one of my favorite stories about this is what I call the Seinfeld strategy. And so Seinfeld, very early in his career, the story goes, he was touring and there's this young comic named Brad Isaac who's opening for him. And he catches Seinfeld backstage before the show. And he says, uh, Mr. Seinfeld, big fan. You know, I'd love to become a better comic. Do you have any tips for a young comic? How can I succeed? And Seinfeld supposedly thinks for a second. And he says, well, the secret to being a better comic is to write better jokes. And the secret to writing better jokes is to write every day. So here's what I think you should do. Get a big wall calendar where you can map out every day of the year, right? On this one calendar. And any day that you do your task of writing jokes for 15 minutes, just take a Sharpie and put an X on that day. And you might have a couple false starts here, there, two, three days, whatever. But at some point, you're going to get a little bit of a chain going five, six, seven, eight days in a row. And at that point, your only goal becomes don't break the chain. It doesn't matter how good or how bad the jokes are. It doesn't matter how you feel about them. It doesn't matter if they make it into the show routine or not. Just don't break the chain. And so what we have here is... We have the 80-20 rule because we know that writing jokes is what makes the biggest difference for leading to success as a comedian. We have repetition and kind of increasing your service area for luck because we know that if you write more jokes, the odds are you're going to come up with a good one every now and then. And we have measurement to track and focus on doing that day in and day out because you have actual visual feedback whenever you look at that calendar that says, hey, are you staying on task or not? Are you doing the thing that you say is the number one most important task for this objective? And so by combining all those, you end up getting a fairly strong you know, connection that can drive all of it forward. James, thank you so much for your time. This has been super enlightening. A lot of good concepts here. A lot of people will maybe have heard a few of these things, but either had no idea where they came from, how to apply them, or maybe knew all of those things and haven't actually managed to put them into effect. So hopefully that will change after this. Thanks, man. So happy to be here. I appreciate you having me on.
Interesting stuff from James Clear. A lot of this stuff is not brand new knowledge for a lot of folks, but the application is definitely new. And the mental models are so useful. We heard about that from Dr. Anders Ericsson when we're talking about deliberate practice. You hear about it from masters in any subject, from chess to sports to literally any type of performance. It's always, always, always about the mental models. What sort of shorthand is your brain using to think of problems and opportunities in a certain way in order to capitalize on those and use them to our advantage? Great big thank you to James Clare. We'll link to his site in the show notes, of course, with along with some of his other work, articles, things that we discussed here on the show. If you enjoyed that, don't forget to thank James on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Remember, you can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players, in other words, your phone screen, the show notes should pop right up. I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm. Great way to engage with us. Throw a virtual tomato at us or hand us some virtual chocolate, whatever you think of the show, uh, or just get some interesting insight from us that we may not have shared on the show. Our live programs, which we mentioned and talked about earlier in the program, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. The live program, it is amazing. It's rewarding for me. I love seeing how people develop, and it's rewarding for, the, for everybody who comes through, obviously, because of how far it takes you and what we can see with our own eyes. Become part of the AOC family, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. We do sell out a few months in advance, so even if you're not sure if you can make it or you're not sure what it's all about, get in touch with us. We'll get you some info. You can plan ahead. Of course, we also have our AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or you can text the word charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444 here in the States. That challenge is about improving your connection skills, your networking skills, your social skills, inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, and regular videos with drills and exercises, the practical stuff to help you move forward It'll make you a better networker, it'll make you a better connector, and it'll make you a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text charmed, charmed, to 33444. For the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show, head over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, and the show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Word of mouth is everything. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.